You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com. For all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. So this is my this is one of my favorite cocktail questions to ask. And to all of your listeners, when you encounter somebody who has not been listening to this podcast, who is the oldest president to have two grandchildren who are still alive? I would posit that 99 out of 100 responses will name a president in the 20th century. And people will be shocked when the first hint you give them is that they were born during the presidency of George Washington. talk about accidental presidents, John Tyler's grandkids, how the Kennedy presidencies and Johnson presidencies may not have happened and not for any electoral reason. And we're going to talk about Lincoln's hair. Why not? Jared Cohen's a really interesting um, interview that I've had, and I think we, we share a, a like for the subject of presidents. A reminder about the extra podcast from My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com to sign up for that. And look, just a good way to support the program. You get a little bit extra meta content where I talk about some of the podcasts and constructing them and the like. You can also just straight up donate, and I appreciate that. Other ways you can help, you want to help out, but another way to help, write an iTunes review. Tell someone about the program, all of these things. I am currently working on the arc of commerce about railroads. Here's our interview with Jared Cohen. I am speaking with Jared Cohen, the author of Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America. Jared, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. There's so much to talk about. It's such an interesting topic, particularly at this time. But I guess I want to start where where else can we begin but with John Tyler, first president to really be a president that one could consider an accident. So you have Tyler succeeding to the presidency and you know, it's not it's not as easy as these VP successions are now, was it? What what's interesting about John Tyler is that the precedent that he set in April of 1841 kind of gets lost in the the annals of of history. Mm. And had he not set that precedent, when you look back at at the events that transpired, it was more likely than not that he would have he he would have failed or if somebody else had been in that situation, it might have been different. History would have been very different. you, You would have had seven accidental presidents who probably would have ascended to the presidency as acting presidents. And I think the history of our, our country would have been, been quite different. Tyler was remarkably prepared. He didn't, he didn't like William Henry Harrison very much. So shortly after the inauguration, he skipped town and went back to his home in, in, in Virginia. And Harrison, after giving a grueling one hour and 45 minute speech that was so tedious that people began walking around in, <laughs> in, in boredom, 
came quite ill just a, a few weeks into his presidency, and a close friend of Tyler's had tipped him off. So Tyler, while he acted surprised when the news was delivered to him at his home, he anticipated Harrison's death, and he had an entire trip from his home back to Washington to anticipate what moves he would make. Yeah, it's interesting, because I've had people question that whole, the original stories, oh, Harrison didn't wear his coat, and then he got sick, and then but, you know, doctors uh, looking at it in, the, in, in modern times, like, well, when, when, when does that incubation period then? It must have happened. The actual the pneumonia must have happened later. So he had weeks where, you know, and, Tyler, and uh, Harrison was actually receiving some visitors and doing some things in the White House, though spending a lot of it in, in bed. So now we see that there was actually a knowing that is instructive to know about it, that Tyler had some prep time, but it still wasn't easy. And I suppose, you know, what happens if, if it's not, if Tyler just becomes an acting president, I guess it's the cabinet that uh, will end up running things. I think that's a big unknown. Mm-hmm. In order to answer that question, I suppose you could look at when Garfield sat there lingering for, for 80 days after being shot and the cabinet essentially ran the country during that period while, while vice president Arthur idol. He effectively functioned as an acting president, but he was so concerned about being seen as overzealous when he had so subverted his own administration that he, he basically took a, a back seat. Poor John Tyler uh, ascended to the, to, to the presidency and had to spend his early month as president defending his right to exist as president. There was no, there's no question that the powers of the presidency were, were in fact in his hands, that the, the debate was whether he in fact was president. He spent his entire presidency returning unopened any letter addressed to him as, as John Tyler acting president or vice president Tyler acting as president, which was something that people did endlessly to, to annoy him. The only person who was thrilled about uh, John Tyler ascending to the presidency w- w- was Henry Clay, and that was short-lived. You know, Clay thought he had an ally in John Tyler and soon found that, that John Tyler was even less likely to make Henry Clay a Manchurian puppet master than, than, than his predecessor was. And I think the cabinet became very frustrated early on with Tyler because he abandoned Harrison's one-man, one-vote approach. He abandoned Harrison's single-term pledge. He basically opposed much of the Whig agenda, including the National Bank, the protective tariff, internal improvements. He seized complete control over patronage, and he relied on an outside kitchen cabinet of a number of states' rightists from Virginia, which which was, was frustrating to, to the Harrison men who wanted to continue you know, with business as usual. He was the original um, Whig in name only, and I guess they, they put him on the ticket mostly because he was an opponent to Andrew Jackson and his overreaching, but not because he loved the Whig policies. So the Whig, the Whigs threw Tyler on the ticket for for a couple a couple reasons. One, back then nobody really wanted to be vice president. I suppose that hasn't changed much much since. Um, but Tyler was really was really a Democrat. They threw him on the the, the ticket to to win Virginia, which they lost, um, as a nod to states' rightists, which didn't really happen uh, anyway. And because he was he was available, but also back then the vice presidency, if somebody wanted it, was seen as kind of an award given to people who'd had honorable service. The framers of the Constitution only included the vice president position as, a, as an electoral mechanism. They, they wanted it to be a proper understudy, sort of next in line position. And by the time Tyler died, none of the framers of the Constitution were alive. Um, you know, the last living link to the framers was really Dolly Madison. So you didn't have any of those firsthand, any of those firsthand accounts. 
No, that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, you don't see the vice president in that role at all. Um, not really, not through much of the 19th century, but you certainly don't see John Adams um, kind of watching or being included in every decision Washington was making is much more likely to go to, say, Hamilton on a few issues, write a letter to Jefferson, get his take. But Adams is just waiting there. Um, it's an interesting thing that, that they go through. And, and it's interesting what you say about the cabinet or Clay, really, who's a, who I believe is in the Senate at this point, wanting to see and seeing an opportunity to see to have possible, like, well, easy person to play, because it seems to happen again and again, and each time they're wrong. They do it with Chester Arthur, right? They do it with Andrew Johnson, and it's it's each time they're wrong. Yeah, and this is the, I mean, this is the interesting thing to me about writing this book, is how despite the fact that it happened eight times, and despite the 19 times that it almost happened uh, uh, throughout our history, we seem to have completely started from scratch and developed no institutional memory uh, for why the second in command matters. But I also, since you mentioned John Adams, I wanted to go, one of my favorite quotes comes from John Adams as vice president when he said, and I quote, my office renders me so completely insignificant that all parties can afford to treat me with the decent respect, which accordingly they do as far as I observe or hear or suspect. They all know that I can do them neither much good nor much harm. And I think that very much summarizes the essence of what our nation's first vice president thought of the position. And then, of course, there's John Nance Garner who said it's not worth a bucket of piss. Um, (laughs) But in the case of John Tyler and Henry Clay and John Tyler's ascension, there should have been no earlier evidence that the vice president needs to be somebody who's ready to lead. And one can imagine being president than when he ascended to the presidency after just 30 days of, of, of Harrison um, as chief magistrate. And Henry Clay um, got a pretty rude awakening early on, which culminated in the first vetoing of the, the, the National Bank. And the first time that, that Tyler vetoes the National Bank, it results in, you know, literally a, a almost stampede of the White House by angry Whig supporters who were egged on by Henry Clay. They burn Tyler in effigy. They throw things through the window of the White House. Apparently, it terrified uh, the Tyler women in the house. And a fun, not so well-known fact is we have a metropolitan night police in Washington, D.C., in direct response to angry, drunken Whigs antagonizing the Tyler family after he vetoed the first national bank bill. <laughs> right. We can thank the Whigs, the, the, the Whigs for that. That's the lasting, the, the one thing they did that lasted, not the party, but. Um... Yeah, no, I think they would have had police at night at some point. And Tyler, you know, struggles, struggles with the presidency. He gets in right at the last minute with the annexing Texas, but I, th- I think, like, doesn't seem to get credit for much. Uh, he has two grandsons still living. You, you, you heard about that, right? I mean, two still living. So this is my, this is one of my favorite cocktail, um, questions to ask. And to all of your listeners, uh, uh, when you encounter somebody who has not been listening to this podcast and who is not one of the handful of people in the world who's an expert on John Tyler, ask them the question, who is the oldest president to have two grandchildren who are still alive? Um, I would posit that 99 out of 100 responses will name a president in the 20th century. And 
people will be shocked when the first hint you give them is that they were born during the presidency of George Washington. Um, and Tyler had, he had 15 children. One died at, um, uh, more or less at childbirth. He had eight children with his first wife, seven with his second, his eldest child, um, he had in his seventies and that child, uh, fathered two children Mm -hmm. in his seventies. And those two children are still alive and in their late eighties and nineties. Um, it is literally one of the most fascinating stories of presidential longevity. Um, and it's interesting if you look at videos of, um, Lion Tyler and Harrison Tyler, the two, the two grandsons, because they're grandsons and not sort of distant descendants, they actually look like John Tyler. Um, so you get a nice glimpse of what Tyler, who himself lived to be pretty old, would it would have looked like. Now you mentioned Texas. I think that, um, the story of Texas is very interesting because, um, John Tyler begins a pattern that we see with all of our accidental presidents, which is um, they become consumed with this idea that they want to become president in their own right. And Tyler understood this better than anybody because he was referred to as as his accidency and an accident and an imposter throughout his entire presidency. Um, He had been excommunicated from the Whig Party formally and became a president without a party after he vetoed the second bank bill. Um, And so getting the nominee nomination as a as uh, um, the front of the Whig ticket in 1844 wasn't possible. Um, The Democrats liked him, but they were still bitter at him for having run as a Whig in the 1840 campaign. And so Tyler determined that his best best path to to being elected in his own right was to do something dramatic, which is champion the annexation of Texas, which was a a highly contentious and difficult issue for both parties, and peel away pro-Texas enthusiasts from both the Whig Party and the Democratic Party, split the vote enough that it could get tossed to the House of Representatives, and he could could cobble together um, winning election in his own right. Um, This is also interesting because John Tyler launches the first um, really active covert covert war of any president in history as a way to kind of um, intrigue to annex Texas. Um, So Texas really his 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 desire to annex Texas really is a combination of a response to being kicked out of the Whig Party um, and an obsession with winning the presidency in his own right. Yeah, it's interesting. And uh, a reminder, we're talking with Jared Cohen, who is the author of Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America, uh, from Simon and Schuster. And uh, yeah, we're talking about people who got to the presidency by accident. I don't think you can escape. I'm sure in many interviews you've done, you can't can't escape the um, what's going on in today's politics. And uh, today is that we have a president who... Um, I I don't know if it's it's fair to say he considers himself an accidental president. I think he he hinted at it. Certainly, members of his staff think that it was a, such a surprise that he won. Um, we have Michael Cohen, his lawyer, recently testifying to the House that they had no idea the Trump campaign they were going to win. It was mostly to just kind of get the name out, maybe get some issues out, um, and and maybe run a better campaign than other GOP candidates would have to really go after um, the Democrats in a way the others wouldn't have been able to, they felt, but not that they would win. So you have a president that's that's ac- accidental. And then with no one, very few people expected that he would he would be there. Um, anything about your book and doing this book it, it gives you perspective on um, a kind of a 
a figure that's unexpected coming into the presidency? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't call uh, President Trump an accidental president. I would call him kind of the ultimate unexpected and dark horse candidate who became president. But it, we are in it, what it shows us is that despite the fact that we've thought about, you know, we, we've gone from not having clarity on whether the vice president becomes the president and having no provision to replace the vice president uh, when it, when it, when it's left vacant to a situation where every minute is accounted for. A president can't go in for a colonoscopy without signing over um, the powers to the vice presidency with the 25th amendment. We have a designated survivor. Uh, we have all sorts of, of things accounted for. And yet we still haven't figured it all out because we haven't thought about what happens in a scenario you know, if a president is compromised and uh, isn't impeached or removed from office, um, isn't willing to resign, I don't think the disability clause would would, would be triggered for that. So it's just it's whether I, I say that all speculatively because we don't Certainly. we obviously don't know the facts, but it's a reminder that we still haven't thought of everything. Right. Um, I think the story of our eight accidental presidents ends up serving as a really interesting case study to view the Constitution as a living document. And if you think about how much we've navigated throughout history without having very much defined, I would argue that if we had tremendous specificity around succession at the earliest stages of the republic, we may not have navigated this so well. Um, and you see this with the kind of whiplash and experimentation with how to do succession throughout history, right? They start by having, you know, the president pro tempore you know, followed by the speaker, and then they get rid of both of them and replace the succession with cabinet. And then Harry Truman, in 1947, switches the order and puts the speaker of the house, then the president pro tem, and then the cabinet. Then we have the 25th Amendment. You know, in the middle there, we have the 20th Amendment, which says if the president elect is assassinated or dies, um, the vice president elect becomes. So we, we sort of experimented throughout history. Um, I think what's interesting about this current moment is how little conversation there is about the vice president. Hmm. Uh, for all the conversations about is there going to be impeachment, is there not going to be impeachment, um, you know, are we in a constitutional crisis, are we not in a constitutional crisis, I hear very few people talking about a scenario where you have a President Pence. Now, I'm not passing judgment one way or the other, I'm just... This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Arguing that that seemed noticeably absent from the conversation. And I think the reason for this is despite all of our experiences with succession and accidents and so forth, um, we still only choose vice presidents um, to win a state, um, appease a constituency, or balance a ticket. And it is ahistoric to argue that the selection of a vice president accomplishes any of those things. Um, I have concluded that the only thing a candidate should factor in when thinking about a vice presidential choice is, can they be pres Can you imagine them as president? Are they going to overshadow you uh, on the campaign trail? Mm -hmm. 
and uh, and or are they going to embarrass you? So where that nets out is if you're at the front of a ticket, you want to choose somebody who everybody can imagine being president and who's sufficiently boring and capable. Well, uh, I think uh, that's and those are great. I think it's tough because in each election, it's usually different, different decisions that factor in. Pence is probably coming out of, well, Trump wasn't from the establishment. Pence had been in the House. Governor of the state gave him uh gave him some credibility within the kind of standard GOP party um, and and almost every VP choice and maybe a few exceptions. I, I I'm I'm, a little, I'm thinking about Clinton and Gore and, you know, good Clinton picks another young senator and maybe didn't have to. Uh, that wasn't to appease a, the liberal wing of the party by picking another moderate southerner. Uh, it was to double down and maybe a little bit of that, like, hey, this guy could be president. And I think you know, Bill Clinton always felt that. But most choices, I think, are, are through history are just these like kind of, um, uh, for some party, either intra-party reason when they got those problems or for a general election reason. Oh, I really need to win this state. I mean, the, the number of, there's a road in Indiana, um, vice president's road. You know, it's not really named that, but the, they give it that uh, they give the area um, the, because there's so many vice presidents just to mostly pick to win the state of Indiana. Uh, Pence joins them, although I don't think that was I don't think they needed those electoral votes. Um, I think that uh, the the to flesh out the point a bit, I think that's great. Um, what you said about uh, in terms of today's politics, if, if to do it in a wholly kind of bipartisan fashion here, because I have listeners of all sorts of stripes. Um, it, it, on one hand, I think that this this book is interesting and these issues are interesting because, yes, you know, if you're if you're totally on one side of things, you know, Trump could potentially be compromised and he might be impeached soon. And there's that issue on the other side. If you're a Trump supporter, the the, the issue that I get a lot or the, the way the issue is presented to me a lot is like, look, this guy gave up his business. He didn't want to be president. He did this for the country. You know, he's in effect like an accidental president. And the media is being so rough on him. The establishment wants him out of there. And, you know, and you can stretch that from a little light treatment of the media's being unfair to some people who believe entirely in like a deep state apparatus against the president. I believe from, from your book, uh, my takeaway is look at all the different types of people who did become president. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, there's some people that are thinking this Trump, it's crazy. This guy, how could this guy be, you know, the office is going to be destroyed. Let's say there might be some people thinking that way, but you look at the history and look at these people of the eight people. I mean, do you think any one of them would have been elected? So the only one of the eight accidental presidents that would likely have become president eventually um, in his own right was Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was was certain certainly had the qualifications to do it. And maybe had he gotten into the race earlier in 1960, he wouldn't have created space for 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 the Kennedy charisma to 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 take over. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you can really only look at at Teddy Roosevelt and say this man, regardless of whether he inherited the presidency, um, would have eventually run and and, and won um, in, in, in his own right. Um, but I think you're right about about. President Trump, we it, we have never had somebody with his particular background uh, as president, um, and the combination of his background with the current social media environment that that exists, you know, is a is a is a sort of perfect storm that we've never seen before. So we, in that sense, we really are in an unprecedented 
we really are in an unprecedented situation. What, what's interesting, and I, here's where I want to distinguish between a dark horse candidate, which Trump and an accidental candidate, which he wasn't, um, because he, he made a deliberate decision to, to run. He probably just didn't think he was going to win. Um, there has actually been one accidental president in history um, uh, who didn't inherit the presidency, and that's James Garfield, ironic, ironically. Um, Garfield went to the 1880 uh, Republican convention um, with the intention of nominating Governor Sherman, um, who had no chance of, of winning the nomination uh, to become president. It was really between, you know, it, this, it, it was the era of half-breeds and stalwarts. You know, one wanted, you know, Grant to come in for a non-consecutive third term. The other wanted, the other faction wanted James Blaine. It was going to be one or the other. So Garfield gets up on stage to nominate Governor Sherman again, who has no chance. Um, and somebody screams from the audience, we want Garfield. And the, 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 the convention is deadlocked. Um, it goes into 30 plus ballots and Garfield does everything he can to not get the nomination. He doesn't want it. A couple of ballots later, Garfield finds that he's been nominated to be the Republican candidate for president. And his face goes pale, his eyes open. He's you know completely shocked by the moment. He tries to counter it, tries to push back, says, can a convention nominate somebody who doesn't seek the nomination? Um, and he obviously went on to, to become president and, and was assassinated. Um, three months after after taking the oath of office. So Garfield was the only truly accidental president in the sense that he's the only man ever to become president without seeking his party's nomination and without inheriting the presidency. Yeah, uh, and, and and he's uh, succeeded by Chester Arthur. Um, the huge surprise there is one where if we were to go back in 1881 and anyone who would study the politics of that period they would be just as shocked i believe as the same uh what happened when um ronald reagan became president and he had been a movie actor or when donald mm-hmm. trump became president and here's a guy who had run casinos and been reality tv uh, you know or i, I suppose in 1960 some people were shocked that that kid who was Kennedy's son, you know, got uh, got elected in a in a squeaker and beat the vice president. I mean, the 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 shock that when Chester Arthur succeeded and actually was to become president was was huge. But he turns around. I mean, it's a story in, in history, at least, you know, is that he uh, he he does great things in in office. Chester Arthur makes the most remarkable transition of any accidental president in history. Um, in the sense that Chester Arthur was the opposite of James Garfield. James Garfield was probably the most beloved man ever elected to the presidency. You know, came from simple beginnings, last president born in a log cabin, you know, hid runaway slaves as a kid, you know, Civil War general and a legitimate hero. I mean, a truly um, inspiring story, even among his, 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 his adversaries, but also totally unshackled from party politics. He ends up you know, having Arthur thrown on the ticket with him as a nod to, you know, New York party boss Roscoe Conkling and, you know, the Ulysses S. Grant block. Um, otherwise, they're th- they threaten to split the ticket. Um, and Arthur is, you know, Mr. Machine politics was fired from his job as collector of the New York Customs House for, for corruption, was a man so vain that he changed his birthday to appear younger Um you know, obsessed over his outfits and money and as vice president spent his entire time trying to subvert his um, his own president's 
um, administration caring more about patronage and machine politics than the success of an administration that he was part of. Um, and, you know, his subversion of President Garfield was so widely known as vice president that when Garfield is assassinated, and it didn't help that he was assassinated by an office seeker and Arthur was Mr. Spoils, but that office seeker named Garfield um, as the beneficiary of, 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 of the president's death. Garfield essentially had to go into quasi hiding for several months because people thought that he was responsible for Garfield's assassination. But something happens to him when Garfield is shot. He has this emotional breakdown and reversal where he blames himself. And a psychologist might say that it reminded him of not being there for his wife um, when she lay on her deathbed because he was off electioneering. Or maybe he truly blamed himself. But he has this remarkable turnaround. And a big part of the turnaround with Arthur is an invalid woman from who lived on the Upper East Side in New York began writing him these long form letters. Her name was Julia Sand and she wrote him 30 plus letters. She was the 1881 equivalent of an internet troll if you read these, <laughs> right. you read these letters. And she tells him he's a terrible man but he can be better. He's so bad but he can be better. And we know that these letters had an impact because he showed up at her house one day in his carriage and spent an hour with her. So we know that he read these letters and he digested them. But, you know, Mr. Spoils, Mr. Machine Politics ends up being the president who signs the Pendleton Act, um, essentially ridding the country of the spoil system and abolishing the modern day civil service. He modernizes the U.S. Navy in a way that hadn't been done, um, you know, since the, the War of 1812 and prepares the U.S. for war um, against Spain um, a decade and a half later. Um, so he ends up he ends up, you know, taking small baby steps to advance civil rights around appointments and some symbolic gestures. So so Arthur doesn't become a great president, but become he becomes a respected president. But that respected president status is, I think, elevated by just the sheer magnitude of his transformation. Well, uh, that, yeah, that's interesting. And I think that um, uh, th- there's a Mark Twain comment where he was a he was a staunch Democrat, at least at that time. And and uh, he's, he says that uh, he couldn't think of one bad thing to say about how Chester Arthur handled um, everything. He, he does improves the civil service. He builds up the Navy. I almost say that uh, his re- his in- inner rebellion began by accepting the vice presidency um, at all. Uh, the nomination, even uh, Roscoe Conkling originally didn't want him to take it when the uh, Garfield folks, you know, extended the, the hand to him. So just by doing that, he sort of angered uh, Conkling. But then, you know, you know that wasn't that 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 got patched up and then hi it's bruce listen we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow simultaneously freezing flooding and on fire it's a lot to take in but what if instead of being on the brink of disaster we're actually on the cusp of a better world if i've got your attention then i highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics. 
and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, he, he his transformation is 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 an interesting story. I guess it you know one might you know take from that that there is a power to the presidency itself that it can change individuals and that once that it it's such an ultimate power that this idea of like a Clay or some of the Republicans around uh, Lincoln's time in Congress or in the cabinet this idea that oh this this new person's coming to the office they're going to be so easy to control but it's not an office that's easily controlled there's great executive day to day power there's appointments you know influence on Congress and it it just seems like let's say there's some situation and Pence becomes president. Which, you know, and could range from one day, you know, if the, to, to take a, a Trump friendly view of it, Trump could say one day, you know what? I'm actually more interested in going back to my business right now. I did everything I have to do. You know, Pence, you take over, or it could be some kind of impeachment or other 25th or something like that. If Pence were to take over, I imagine there's a lot of people maybe in the GOP that say, okay, we're back in charge. You know, the, the kind of anti Trump GOP people. Uh, or just the congressional people who might have a slightly different agenda or Mitch McConnell or someone. Or there might be Democrats thinking, okay, we got this guy. I think mm-hmm. your book, you know, would show that, uh, they, the, the, probably the last thing that the opposing party wants is like a Pence presidency. He, he's, there, there should be a, some reservoir of goodwill based on the Arthur and Coolidge, Johnson. Roosevelt that the you know the new president is is someone that the powers devolved upon they didn't they didn't mm-hmm. gr- they weren't greedy they weren't on the top of the ballot they didn't usually run the whole kind of campaign that the other person did that that you know so two things not easy not as easy to control as you think and also probably a little more popular at least initially with the American people yeah I mean one of the things that that my book the accidental presidents shows me is there is a long history of interest groups, factions of parties making certain assumptions about the president being an ally of theirs or the accidental president being an ally of theirs that that proves untrue. Whether it's, you know, John Tyler ascending to the presidency and Henry Clay thinking he won the lottery or Zachary Taylor being elected president in 1848 and all the Southern slave owners um, assuming that they've got the perfect man uh, as president only to be surprised that he wants to immediately admit California, uh, Utah and New Mexico into the into the union as free states, whether it's Andrew Johnson ascending to the presidency and the radical Republicans thinking that they have their best ally only to find that he becomes a stronger ally of the Confederacy that he once lambasted, whether it's Arthur surprising the proponents of the spoil system. I think everybody expected Teddy Roosevelt to be exactly who Teddy Roosevelt was. And and I think, you know, with FDR, you got what you expected. Um, I think Lyndon Johnson um, reminds us that presidents can't be controlled, but presidents can be manipulated. Um, and it's very clear to me that had Lyndon Johnson exhibited the same amount of courage on Vietnam that he exhibited on civil rights, had he demonstrated a, a level of confidence um, in um, uh, 
approaching Vietnam as thoughtfully as he approached civil rights, um, he would have concluded very quickly that he should have cleaned out his national security cabinet. Yeah. Yeah. There's an example of someone, um, I suppose, you know, Kennedy was a little more thoughtful on the issue. I know he had visited Vietnam in the past, uh, uh, and, and, uh, had, uh, had his opinions on that conflict. Whereas, uh, yeah, Lyndon Johnson coming into the presidency, I think, first of all, is a, a person that, as great a president as he was on one thing's a great, a great, you know, mover and shaker of Congress and influencer of Congress. Got that domestic side down. Somebody that probably never would have been elected. I mean, he could have been, uh, had there not been the Kennedy campaign, it's possibly could have been the 1960 candidate, but I see a pretty much lopsided, um, election for Nixon in that one. You know, maybe, maybe Johnson pulls Texas in, but loses a lot of northern states that, uh, Kennedy was able to bring in. I think that, uh, um, you, so you have a person that's skilled, but un, un, um, yeah, d- doesn't have certain other, uh, judgments. And because he hadn't won election in his own right and needed to do so, you see in some of these early steps that he's taking towards Vietnam, the absolute need to not lose the conservative vote, particularly the Southern senators, to, to mm-hmm. not be seen as weak on defense and to not get Eisenhower criticizing him. Um, so he, he comes from a, without that election of his own, he comes initially, at least he comes at a different value set. Um, and, and yeah, makes a, makes a series of issues that probably a two term Kennedy administration, I'd like to think anyway, would, would, would have been different. Yeah. The other thing with Lyndon Johnson is, after writing Accidental Presidents, I, I feel quite confident in arguing that Johnson was almost certainly going to be dropped from the ticket in 1964. Um, not because uh, Robert Kennedy hated him, which he did. Mm-hmm. Not because he was in utter pain, which he was. But the Bobby Baker scandal, um, who Bobby Baker was, was, was one of Johnson's main aides, um, was basically breaking um, you know, the week after Kennedy was assassinated and CBS and Time Warner had the goods on him. Um, and I absolutely believe they were ready to go public and they pulled it back um, because of the assassination. It was such a head snapping transition captured on video that I believe that the media at the time made the deliberate decision that the country could not handle a situation where the president had just mm-hmm. been assassinated. Um, his assassin had just been assassinated. They didn't know to what extent there was conspiracy. And then all of a sudden you have um, a vacancy. Uh, all of a sudden you then have um, the president, uh, you know, having to, 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 to resign shortly after ascending. And remember, you don't have a 25th Amendment. So mm-hmm. There is no question for replacing the vice president of the United States at that time. Um, so, um, you know, yeah. in, in many respects, Ken- I believe Kennedy's assassination um, you know, was tantamount to to LBJ getting the equivalent of a pardon because the the media didn't um didn't go forward with this story. The other interesting thing about Kennedy that people don't realize is Kennedy was nearly killed by a suicide bomber um as president elect. Um, and, and when I say nearly killed, I mean you know Richard Pavlik, uh, who somewhat stereotypically was a disgruntled postal worker, um, filled his Buick 
with enough dynamite to blow up the entire street, according to one Secret Service agent, um, and only didn't and, and would have done it as Kennedy was on his way to church and didn't do it because he saw Jackie and felt bad. So he followed him to church, moved the dynamite into his pants, was standing five feet away from him with his finger on the trigger and didn't push it because there were too many children around. Um, you know, there's also um, that's shocking. So, so, yeah, I hadn't hadn't been aware of that story. That's a, that's incredible. So you almost had to Johnson yeah early on. Well, and remember, you have the Twentieth Amendment, which says that if the president elect um, is vacant, is left vacant, uh, then the vice president um, becomes becomes president. But it gets complicated because it depends where in the sequence, because they're not president elect until two things happen. One, the, the electors cast their votes um, and two, a joint session of um, Congress tabulates those votes. And assassination would have happened before that. So technically, um, had Pavlik succeeded in killing president elect Kennedy, um, the party bosses could have gone in a different direction if they didn't want Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, that's interesting. That well, that would have been that would have been a um, a real yeah. I hadn't uh, hadn't thought hadn't been aware of that suicide bomb. So that that's a real interesting thing to think about. Um, well, Jerry Cohen, you were a very busy person. You're you're also involved with uh, the Council on Foreign Relations. You've authored a bunch of other books. You know, I will say that this book, Accidental Presidents, is the book that I have always wanted to write. My parents bought me a book when I was eight years old called The Buck Stops Here thinking it was a cute book about presidents. And what they didn't realize is they would then have to have eight conversations about death with me. Um, they didn't anticipate that an eight-year-old would sort of latch on to four assassinations and for presidential deaths, not to mention other dark chapters in history, um, like, like Richard Nixon. And so I've sort of become obsessed with presidents who died in office since I was a young kid. And, um, you know, I collect um, uh, signed documents and, presidential items associated with those transitions, including, very strangely, uh, presidential locks of hair. So I have a lock of Abraham Lincoln's hair from the night of his assassination. Wow. Um, and I have a lock of William Henry Harrison's hair from uh, from when his body lay in rest in the, in the East Room. How does one get a lock of Abraham Lincoln's hair? I mean, is this eBay it's- or <laughs> – no, no, no. It's a small market of hair people. Okay. Um, and most, one of the most fa- – and there, there's a – I have a hair guy. Um, <laughs> his name is John Resnikoff. He's the largest collector of historic hair in the entire world. He's also a leading authenticator. And John possesses the most famous lock of presidential hair in the world, which is a, lo- a, a, a very large – and thick lock of Lincoln's hair from the exact part of his head where the bullet went through. And I know my six strands, which constitutes my lock, comes from that larger one because I sat there over his shoulder taking a video of him uh, pulling the precise six strands of hair that I selected as part of this larger one. Wow. Wow. They can get it down to the strand. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not so, st- you know, the the, the whole uh, locks of hair thing. I mean, I, I think my mother in her, her yearbook and her various books with her high school graduation 1960 or so you know was locks of hair were there so we're not we're not too far away from 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 that whole uh that whole thing being quite quite normal and part of everyday uh life um yeah i mean uh the one the one uh jumping back a bit the one uh because we talked about tyler and tyler's precedent cemented the the vice president um not only the powers devolving on them but also that they become president themselves uh i think that you know when you get to 1850 and that helps out um millard fillmore 
who becomes the, uh, you know, he's not a vice president that's talked about a lot, but he plays a crucial role, role in the compromise of 1850. And, you know, mm-hmm. you could just imagine had Tyler not done what he did and not established that precedent in the middle of a debate like that, where the country's being pulled apart and you have Davis and Calhoun and, uh, you know, threatening to leave the union over California and Northerners, you know, uh, uh, adamant as well. And that you need that compromise. If, if, they, if you hadn't had a person firmly established, this is now president unquestionably, you know, the whole thing might have turned out differently. Yes. And I, I believe 1850 is one of the most interesting years in American history. One, the transition. So when, when the, the, the transition of Zachary Taylor to Millard Fillmore, um, I believe out of all the accidental president transitions marks the clearest 180 pivot from the predecessor in the sense that Fillmore ascends to the presidency mm. and completely unblocks the compromise of 1850, which Zachary Taylor was standing on his own preventing from, from, from happening. What's interesting about Taylor is Jefferson Davis was his closest confidant. And the two of them actually hated each other for a long time uh, because Jefferson Davis married Zachary Taylor's daughter. And at one point, Taylor challenged him to a duel. Uh, which he didn't accept. When Taylor's daughter dies uh, about six months after she and Jefferson Davis get married, Taylor and Davis develop a real affinity for each other. And he really becomes the only person who enjoys the president's confidence. What's also interesting about Fillmore's ascension to the presidency is he makes probably the dumbest move of any accidental president, which is on day one, he fires the entire cabinet. Uh, He then asks them if they'll stay on for three weeks to help with the transition. And Essentially, just to be obnoxious and for lack of a more sophisticated way of putting it, to be jerks about it, they tell him they'll stay on for a little less than a week. So Fillmore ends up with no department chiefs for several months at arguably the most polarized moment in American history. And when I say the most polarized moment in American history, you literally had a moment as – Um, you know, as Congress was debating what Henry Clay described as the five gaping wounds, um, where a senator pulled a gun on another senator and tried to shoot him right there on the Senate, right there on the Senate floor. Senator Foote of Mississippi uh, tried to to shoot Senator Thomas Hart Benton. And what's remarkable is he, he literally pulled the gun, had to be restrained. You then had a massive brawl right there in the Senate chamber and then the gavel uh, was banged and everybody kind of sat down, apologized and got on with it. Yeah. So I find people of this story when they think we're in this sort of hyper polarized moment, which we, we are. But nobody's pulling a gun on another senator in the Senate chamber. Yeah, it, it, there's no I, I, I the, the, the one thing I've been dealing with for doing this show many years is is the question of are we in a more partisan time? You know, they asked it back in. When Bush was president, they asked them. When Obama was president, same question comes up now. We're in this more partisan time. Well, yeah, well, yeah pointing to these various melees in Congress or duels that are, uh, you know, is really a, yeah, a way of disputing that. Um, you're hearing some great stories. We're talking with Jared Cohen, the author of Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America. In addition to writing this book, you're a very busy person. You're involved with uh, – you're, you're a business person. You're involved with uh, – you've written other books. Um, any, you're involved with the Council of Foreign Relations. Anything you'd like to talk about that kind of led you, led you to writing this book? There's three things that I love. I love history. I love politics. And I love trying to understand lessons in leadership. And I wanted to find a way to combine all three of them. I'm also, um, I'm an executive at a, at a tech company. Mm-hmm. 
right? And um, you know, I think that my industry is one of the industries that 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 you know is focused most on what happens next and moving fast. That we often forget to think about history. Um, but I was a dual major in history and political science at Stanford, and ended up as an executive at a tech company. Um, and so I'm a big believer in the fact that my training as a amateur historian and amateur political scientist prepared me to be a business leader. And so I, I worry that the humanities is um, a bit under threat in an era where everybody wants to be a computer scientist. And I'm not admonishing the sciences or computer science, but I really believe that we can't understand where we're going and where we are today if we don't reflect back on how we arrived. Um, at our current moment. And I think that we draw these sort of sweeping generalizations about what's happening in our country today. Um, and a lot of those generalizations are ahistorical. For instance, if you think about polarization right now, the history of pure partisan polarization is extremely recent. Um, historically, our country's polarization has been much more driven by sectional differences, you know, mm -hmm. you know, Northern Democrats and Northern Whigs and later Republicans, Southern Democrats and Southern Republicans, factions within each party, um, you know, polarization around how to think about, you know, the uh, disbursement of patronage. You know, it, it wasn't until Lyndon Johnson signed three landmark pieces of legislation that we began a transition away from sectional polarization towards this sort of brief moment where the common enemy of the Cold War made the differences between the parties seem kind of minute. And then it's the end of the Cold War and the ascension of Bill Clinton, which is really the beginning of the pure partisan politics that we know today. Yeah, I think so. I always, you know, talk about like, you know, you had somebody like Javits in New York where you had Yarborough in, in Texas. I mean, you had you had liberals in Texas and fairly moderate to, to liberal in um, uh, Republicans in, in New York. And so it's these, this doesn't exist in, in the same way uh, anymore. We're certainly, yeah, there's certainly, it, there's a need to see that, that change in polarization. Although I always tell people, I mean, you know, you're going to, you know, if, for those that wish for a more bipartisan future, just just be aware that that means in California you need a GOP member, and that means in uh, South Carolina you're going to end up with a Democrat. That's and you may not, you may or may not like it. You know, so that's that's what was uh, was needed. Yeah, you know, for that. Um, who do you think handled this this accidental situation that they were in best, or do do you even have a a, a single person? I mean, I think Harry Truman is the is the obvious one. Um, you know, I think that Truman was a provincial politician from Missouri who spent just north of 80 days as vice president, didn't get a single intelligence brief, wasn't read into Yalta, wasn't read into the Manhattan Project, had only met with FDR a few times, had basically not thought at all about being president. On top of that, he had impossible shoes to fill and an impossible amount of institutional knowledge uh, to absorb, and he'd never even stepped foot in the map room. Um, and yet, despite that, he um, brings the war in Europe to a close, brings the war in Japan to a close, making one of the toughest decisions in, um, in U.S. history, navigates the post-war order in a way that Woodrow Wilson wasn't able to do um, at the end of World War One, develops his own opinion about Stalin as opposed to just inheriting and copying FDR's sentiments, recognizing that the situation was fluid and, and evolving, and ends up being quite a miracle. 
he ends up having one of the most remarkable and surprising presidencies in, in history. Yeah, and he makes a point not to fire his whole cabinet like uh, Phil Moore did. And uh, some of the more successful, I, could, I look at Roosevelt is a great example, too, of, well, don't fire your cabinet like Fillmore or do anything crazy like that. Make a statement that you're going to keep the policies of McKinley, but slowly but surely make your own imprint on the office. <laughs> yeah, there's one there's one quote I want to share because I sure. interviewed the late uh, President Bush for this book a, a few times. And oh. I asked him um, I asked him about. Uh, Harry Truman, because he was he was deployed, you know, he he, he was deployed in the in, in the war at the time. And, and he told me, and I quote, it turned out Truman did a fine job. Thank heavens. We all assumed we were training for the invasion of Japan. I always felt Harry saved our lives by dropping atomic bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, there's a guy that, you know, an accidental president with no information that made a made a great call. Yeah, deserves uh, deserves the credit he gets in history for that. That is uh, that's a, that's a great thing to know that in your book you you got to interview um, the late President Bush. Yeah, the book has a number of, of interviews that that readers might find useful. I have multiple interviews with with the late President Bush. I have multiple interviews with Henry Kissinger, um, which are which are fascinating. He has some very interesting views on the on the on the vice presidency. I asked him about why FDR didn't more responsibly bring Truman up to speed, and he he said that until recently, you know, the president of the United States didn't want the person who would most benefit from their death to be lingering around them uh, too often. Um, I also had a, a very lengthy interview with with former Vice President Cheney. Um, I had, um, uh, you know, interviews with Tom Brokaw about the um, the Kennedy assassination, Paul McCartney about the Kennedy assassination, because Beatlemania happened right, um, right after, uh, right after Kennedy was assassinated. And, and he has a very interesting theory, which I don't write about in the book, that, that the, the Beatles were kind of the, the, the picked up on a lot of the momentum and demand for Camelot that, that was kind of left, left out there uh, following Kennedy's, following Kennedy's uh, assassination. I also interview H.R. McMaster, the, the former national security advisor, who himself is an expert on Vietnam. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's a, the, the book, it's hard, to, you can't really do interviews going back to John Tyler and you know, Andrew Johnson, but you, you can do some really good interviews related to the, the FDR and Truman chapter and Kennedy and Johnson chapter. I interviewed Condoleezza Rice as well. So the, the book has some, some interesting contemporary interviews. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's a wealth of knowledge. Um, uh, recommend reading it. Accidental Presidents, Eight Men Who Changed America by Jared Cohen, who joined us. Jared, thanks so much for coming on. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. I enjoyed this a lot. Thank you very much. I did as well. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.